Yeah, thanks very much, Ranagoon, and thanks, thanks for coming. I'm, I'm fairly amazed that so many people have made it on such a, uh, a difficult day. Um, so as Ranagoon has said, uh, he's invited me across uh, the snowy Pennines to talk about this text uh, called the Bodhicharya Avatara. I think you said that, yes. The Bodhicharya Avatara. Um, which was written by a monk called Shantideva, who lived in northern India about sometime in the 8th century of the Christian era. And um, as Ratnaguna also said, there's, there's a, this is a, the first in a short series on the Sevenfold Puja. So what's the connection? What's the connection between um, Bodhicharya Avatara and the Sevenfold Puja? The connection is that um, the puja we do comes from, the Shant from Shantideva's Bodhicharya Avatara. It's, it's excerpts from the, um, several chapters from the Bodhicharya Avatara. Um, and, um, yeah, so there, th that, that practice, the Sevenfold Puja, was actually around before, before Shantideva, but uh, the words, the images that we use in our Puja come from him, and he's sort of really, uh, really elaborated it and written it very poetically. Um, for this work, the Bodhicharya Avatara, it's hugely important and hugely influential. Um, text in the Buddhist tradition, not just because the puja comes from it, but um, well, in a way it's the text, it's one of the texts of Mahayana Buddhism, of the Buddhism that sort of developed about 500 years after the Buddha's passing. It's the text of that, and given that the great majority of Buddhists who ever lived have been Mahayana Buddhists, that makes it a pretty important text. Um, it was the first text that Sangharachita ever led study on when he, after he founded the movement. It's a text that the Dalai Lama says is his main inspiration and which he reads every day. Um, it's an awful lot of Tibetan Buddhism comes from the Bodhicharya Avatar, especially the best bits. So uh, it's a really important text. It's really worth knowing something about the text in its own right. Um, it's a very important text. It's also a really beautiful text. really beautiful text, full of imagery from the era of sort of camel caravans going through the, uh, the Gobi Desert on the Silk Route and um, that sort of thing. It's very redolent of the era with great imagery. And it's also uh, sort of psychologically and emotionally very astute, astute text. It's very wise. It knows a lot about human nature, as we'll see as, bit as we go through it. So it's worth knowing about it in its own right. Um, and we need to know something about it if we're going to understand the Sevenfold Puja and what the Sevenfold Puja is getting at because the Sevenfold Puja is sort of inbuilt into the Bodhicharya Avatara. Um, so my aim tonight is to give you a bit of a taste of the Bodhicharya Avatara. I can only do that in, uh, you know, in, in a five-minute talk. Um, and but, but by doing that, to give you a bit of a... a, bit of a over, uh, an overview of what the puja is all about, sort of kick off the series. Um, not just what it's about, but how it could fit into your spiritual life. Because, um, yeah, because it, 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 Shantideva was writing a guide to the Buddhist path, which is just as relevant to us now as it was then. Okay, so um, what's, this, what's it about, this text? For a start, who was the person called Shantideva? Who was Shantideva? Okay, he lived in northern India about, as I said, about the 8th century of the Christian era and he lived and worked at the great uh, monastic Buddhist university of Nalanda which is said to have been the, uh, the largest university the t around at the time, huge place. Um, and there are loads of mythic stories about Shantideva um, but probably they tell us a bit more about how much respect he's got in the Buddhist tradition than they actually tell us about Shantideva. Okay. So people make up great mythic stories about great figures. Um, we don't actually know a huge amount about the man. Um, in actual factual terms, we know that he wrote, wrote at least one other book. He wrote a thing called the Shiksa Samuchaya. Get that right, it's a bit of a tongue twister. Uh, which means the Compendium of Practice, which is a huge, well, it's not a huge work, but it's a, it's a work of great scholarship that quotes large numbers of, of sutra, sutras, Mahayana sutras, many of which have vanished, which we don't know about anymore. Uh, we know that, so we know he was a great scholar. He wrote this other book, and we know that he was a devotee of Manjugosha, 
because he tells us that because he puts devotional uh, bits in his in his in his works um, offering them to Manjigosha asking Manjigosha's assistance um, and he, we know that he was well what else do we know about him he, he had this encyclopedic knowledge of Buddhist scriptures and uh, he was a great scholar but he was also a great meditator and practitioner he wasn't just coming from scholarship um, he, and the Vodhicharya avatar doesn't just come from scholarly knowledge it really comes from sort of deep insight it comes from a level of mind that's a bit beyond worldly scholarship okay so that's a bit about him um, what about the time what about the text itself so it's called I, was, I thought I'd have a flip chart but I was going to write things on it so beforehand but I haven't had a chance so I won't write things down because I haven't got one but um, the text is no I, 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 because it would just take so long to write everything down I'll just you just have to try and visualize the writing okay it's um, it's called the Bodhi Charya Avatara it's the text Bodhi wisdom awakening Charya way or path Avatara something like guide so something like the guide to the way of awakening the guide to the path of wisdom something like that um, in Tibetan circles it's sometimes called the Bodhisattva Charya Avatara in other words the, the guide, not the guide to the path of wisdom but the guide to the path of the Bodhisattva and sometimes translated as that so the guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life is one, one translation that you might not be aware of and that guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life pretty much describes the text okay. it's a guide to the path of practice of if you like the trainee bodhisattva the person following what's called the bodhisattva path um, both in terms of how to cultivate the sort of interior mental states and in terms of how to act in the world how to express those mental states in the world so the path of the bodhisattva bodhi wisdom awakening sattva being or sometimes hero so um, the awakening being the hero of wisdom the awakening hero something like that but basically the bodhisattva is the ideal the spiritual ideal for the practitioner any practitioner in Mahayana Buddhism in the Buddhism that developed 500 years or so after the after the Buddha's uh, passing um, so the bodhisattva path that's being described in the Bodhicharya Avatara um, is the way the Buddhist path was re-expressed by that Mahayana Buddhism, that sort of late, slightly later form of Buddhism. It was re-expressed in the form of the Bodhisattva path. And the text is a guide to that, a guide to the Bodhisattva path, a sort of a manual of it. Um, but we shouldn't think that that means it's a different path. It's not a different path from the path in earlier Buddhism, for example. Um, it's a restatement. It's a restatement of quite of the fundamentals of the path. It's a restatement of what we might call basic Buddhism, not because it's basic in the level of simple, but it's basic because it's what's on the, what everything else is built on. It's a restatement of that, but particularly emphasising altruism, um, concern for others, practising for the welfare of the world rather than just to have nice mental states ourselves. Um, and that's not new. That's nothing new. That wasn't that's, the Mahayana emphasised that, but that wasn't a new thing. The Buddha was quite uh, often emphasised that we should be practising, in his words, for the welfare of the many, for the well-being of gods and men, and not just to feel more liberated or in better states ourselves. And this altruistic sort of practising for the world um, might have rather got lost sight of for a bit which is why Mahayana Buddhism felt that Mahayana Buddhists felt they had to really re-emphasize it. So it's a restatement of the path with that very much in mind. Um, so it's a description of the Bodhisattva path, the Bodhicharya Avatara. And the simplest and the most popular formulation of the, of the Bodhisattva path is, you've probably heard of, is the six parameters, the six often translated as perfections. Um, so often translated as perfections, but actually this word paramitar um, seems to mean something more like way to the other shore or way beyond. Um, 
their practices, these six practices of the Bodhisattva path are six practices to help us go beyond. Uh, go beyond our small cramped self to open up to something more expansive, more universal. Um, the parameters, they could be called the um, six transcendent practices because they help us to transcend ourselves. That's what they're about. They're about transcending ourselves. And they are, you probably know this, but I'm going to give you the list. Um, so the six of them, they are dana or generosity, shila or ethics, shanti or patient forbearance, um, not allowing our mental states to be blown around by external events, virya or energy, effort, jhana, meditation, and uh, pranya, wisdom. So, dana, generosity, shila, ethics, kshanti, that sort of robustness in the face of events, being a bit above the little happenings of the world. Virya, energy, dhyana, meditation, pranya, wisdom. And those are the six parameters. Um, and that's the structure that the Bodhicharya avatar follows. Um, so that's the structure that Shantideva follows as he takes us through the Buddhist path. He follows this structure of the, uh, of the six parameters, um, with one exception, which scholars have found it just a bit mysterious, really, a bit mysterious. So there's a chapter on ethics, which focuses on, particularly on the mindfulness aspect of ethics that underlies our ability to practice the precepts. Chapter on ethics. There's a chapter on uh, Shanti, there's a chapter on Virya, there's a chapter on meditation, there's a chapter on wisdom. But there seems to be no chapter on Dana, the first of them. No chapter on generosity. Um, and that's a bit of a puzzle, or at least some people have found it a bit of a puzzle. Um, surely Dana, giving, generosity, it's really fundamental to the Buddhist path. And surely, if anything, even more fundamental to the Bodhisattva path, if we're emphasizing practicing for the world, practicing for others, then dana generosity must be hugely important. Surely there should be at least one chapter on it, you think. Um, one chapter on how to give, what to give, when to give, you know, the mechanics of generosity. How do, how do we do it? But there isn't. And that's really puzzled some scholars. Why not? Why not? What's so, why not? No chapter about giving money, giving gifts, giving things. But if we step back, if we step back a bit from this text, um, we see that this isn't such a puzzle after all. Um, there's no chapter about giving money, giving things. But there are four chapters. The first four chapters about giving ourselves. Um, they're about how do we give ourselves to something bigger than we are now um, how do we give ourselves to the sort of current of positive spiritual energy that runs through, that motivates the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas um, speaking poetically we could say they're about how do we give ourselves to what some Japanese Zen teachers for example have called big mind how do we give ourselves to a mind that's bigger than our own um, so that we escape from the prison of our own small, sort of cramped emphasis on our own little wants and our own little fears? A painful focus on ourselves. And that's what the first four chapters of the Bodhicharya Avatar are all about. How do we give, not money or gifts or things, but how do we give ourselves? Um, because uh, for Shantideva, obviously, this is the real practice of generosity. This is the real practice of dana. Not giving the odd thing here and there, but making our whole life an act of generosity. Um, making our whole life about what we can contribute to the universe, what we can contribute to other beings. That's his practice of dana. Um, and the Sevenfold Puja that this series is about is about this. It's an aspect of this. So these four chapters are about how we give ourselves. And the Sevenfold Puja is an important part of that. It's an important practice 
to help us to give ourselves to the path. And it's contained in these four chapters. So, okay, at this point I can almost hear some of you thinking, well that's all very well, that's all very wonderful and idealistic, but I don't want to give myself, thank you very much, um, to anything. Um, I'm the boss. I'm the boss. I am the master of my fate and the captain of my soul. Uh, and that's the way it's going to stay. I'm not giving myself to something else. Um, and in a way, that's all very well. That's all very well. But, but, but in fact, we're always giving ourselves to something. We're always giving ourselves to something. Maybe we give ourselves to a quest for money and success and or success. Maybe we give ourselves to a career. Maybe we give ourselves to a relationship and a family. Maybe we give ourselves to a quest for pleasure. Maybe we give ourselves to a quest for popularity um, and approval. Maybe we give ourselves to a life script that our parents wrote for us, which we're dutifully doing, what we should do, what folk in our family do. Often we give ourselves to our negative mental states. Um, our greed, our aversion, our anxiety, our resentment. We're always giving ourselves to something. It would be nice to be the captain of our soul, but we're always giving ourselves to something. Um, the question is, not whether we give ourselves, but it's what we give ourselves to. Um, so the question is not whether we give ourselves to something. The question is whether we allow ourselves, whether we give ourselves to something that makes our life worthwhile and meaningful, um, fulfilled. Something that allows us to grow to our full stature as beings. That's the real question. And that's what the first four chapters of the Bodhicharya Avatara are all about. Um, how do we give ourselves to the highest possible purpose uh, the purpose that will give our life real meaning, give us real satisfaction and allow us to grow into what we could become, the being that we could become. How do we do that? Um, so that's what the first four chapters are about. Um, after that, the book goes on to look at mindfulness, shanti, all the other things we've talked about. Um, so... Each of those chapters, each of those latest chapters, is hugely inspiring in its own right. Um, they're really good, they're great, I love them, but I haven't got time to talk about them. So I'm going to focus on the first four, because they're where the puja sits, because I haven't got time to do them all. I haven't got time to do anything like justice to the whole text. Um, and, um, well, for those reasons, basically, because I can't do a talk in 45 minutes on the way to chair of the tire, basically. Um, so, I'm going to focus on the first four chapters. Uh, I might say a little bit about the others, but I'm going to focus on the first four chapters. Because these are the context for the Sevenfold Puja. Um, and it's those we sort of need to know about if we're going to make sense of the Puja. And it's what it's all about. So, as, all, as I said, they're all about the practice of dana. first four chapters about the practice of dana, practice of generosity, giving ourselves, making our life about what we can contribute. Um, making our life about what we can give more than what we can get. Um, they're, they're about those things. And Shantideva approaches this in a way which is sort of psychologically and emotionally very astute, um, very realistic. Um, so the first four chapters are in three bits. The first chapter is about how we can start to want to give ourselves. The second two then the chapters two and three are about how we decide to give ourselves. And the fourth chapter is how we, about how we stick to that decision once we've made it. Okay? So how we can want to, how we can decide to, and how we can stick to that. Um, yeah, so the first chapter about how we want to, second how we second and third how we decide to, the fourth how we stick to that decision. Um, so let's start with chapter one. Let's start with chapter one. As I've said, it's, this is a very psychologically and emotionally astute text, a very wise text that takes human nature into account very well. And we human beings, we don't do anything that we don't want to do. 
Okay? We might pretend to, but we don't. Um, when we try to do things because we should do them, but we don't really want to, we don't really do them. We do them sort of half-heartedly so they don't get done, or we undermine our attempt to do them by doing other things that undermine them. Or if we're really willful, we burn out partway through and give up and go do something different. Um, so we don't do what we don't want to do, but when we really want to do something, by heck do we do it. By heck do we do it. I mean, just remember when you've really wanted something, when you've really wanted a relationship or a job or something, by heck you've gone for it and you put real energy into it. We get rid of the obstacles, we do it, we make it happen. Um, it doesn't seem like a chore to us, it comes from the very centre of our being. So the first step in this, giving ourselves to the path, is to want to give ourselves to the path. Um, we have to want to give ourselves to benefiting the universe. Um, and to want to do that, we've got to see the benefits. We've got to see the benefits that that would give us. So Shantideva doesn't lecture us now. You be good boys and girls, you do, because you really should do this as good Buddhists. He does not do that. Um, you must do your painful duty and give yourselves up. You must. He doesn't do that. Instead, if he tells us how wonderful it would be, how absolutely wonderful it would be to have that mindset that motivates someone following the Bodhisattva path. How, how wonderful it would be to give ourselves up to the stream of spiritual energy that's working through the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. How wonderful it would be to give ourselves up to what we could poetically call big mind and escape from the sort of narrow, cramped prison of small mind where we're always focused on our own little wants, our own little fears. Um, so um, that's, his, that's his goal in the first chapter. How, tell us how wonderful it would be so that we want it. How wonderful it would be to have this mindset so that we want it. Now, this mindset um, that he's talking about here that motivates the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, is, he uses a technical term, which probably a lot of you have come across, but some of you won't have done, which is the bodhicitta. So he talks about it as the bodhicitta. Bodhi, wisdom, we've already come across that, awakening. Chitta, heart and mind, they're not distinguished. So it's the, it's the um, awakening heart, the wisdom mind. Um, and this bodhicitta, awakening heart, wisdom mind, is this mindset. It's the mindset that wants to practice the Dharma, that wants to um, do that in order to c contribute to the universe, that wants to get small mind out of the way, give ourselves up to big mind. Um, and he, in chapter one of this text, he just tells us how great that would be, how wonderful that would be, how it would solve all our problems. Um, to give ourselves up to the bodhicitta, allow ourselves to be guided by the bodhicitta rather than our own small sort of wants and preferences and fears and all the stuff we get so worked up about, that little stuff that we get so worked up about. So Shantideva completely turns our normal way of looking at things on its head. Um, so he tells us that the way to be happy is not to focus on our own wants. Um, in fact, as the Four Noble Truths tell us, Focusing on our own wants is the grade one number, grade number one way to cause suffering to ourselves, to be unhappy, um, as the Four Noble Truths tell us. Because the universe doesn't take any notice of our wants. We'll go against them as often as not, uh, for one thing. And um, because anyway, we, we are bigger beings than that. We could be bigger beings than that. If we just focus on ourselves, we will always feel painfully cramped, painfully lacking in self-esteem, painfully lacking, uh, painfully cut off from what's best in us. So he turns our normal way of looking at things on its head. So this is not from being successfully selfish, it's from giving that up, letting that go. So he tells us, this is a quote, the bodhicitta is the one blessing that brings joy and bliss. Those who want to transcend the sufferings of, of, ex of conditioned existence, those who want to relieve the sufferings of others, and those who want to experience joy in their own hearts should never abandon the bodhicitta. 
So he goes on, he tells us that if we could give ourselves up in this way, it would transform us uh, from a trapped, weak, suffering being, imprisoned, as it were, in our own ego, into somebody strong and noble and worthy of honour and respect. So he says, the moment the bodhicitta arises in someone fettered and weak in the jail of cyclic existence, they are instantly hailed as a son or daughter of the Buddhas and honoured by gods or men. So this transformation from being in jail to being honoured, uh, which just comes about from this change of emphasis in what we're living for. Um, it's a medieval text, so we're told that the bodhicitta is like the magical stone of the alchemist that sort of transforms dross into gold. Um, he says the bodhicitta is the philosopher's stone that transmutes the base metal of this body into the gold, gold of the Buddha jewel. Grasp it tightly and use it well. So he tells us that every worldly source of pleasure um, just gives temporary sort of alleviation from suffering, distraction from suffering, can't give permanent happiness. But the bodhicitta gives us deep fulfillment that lasts and doesn't depend on outer circumstances. He compares the normal pleasures to a, a banana tree. Apparently banana trees fruit and then die. Uh, and he says other pleasures are like that. But the bodhicitta gives real happiness. Um, he tells us that the bodhicitta protects us like a great hero. Um, and that it burns up our past habits and our, and our evil karma. Um, obviously the bodhicitta doesn't protect us physically. It doesn't sort of you know, oh, you know, I can't stop my toe about the bodhicitta. It doesn't protect us physically, um, but it protects us from negative mental states, the negative mental states that are the real source of our suffering, um, the real cause of our suffering. And it burns up past habits and old karma um, because it's a spiritual death. It's a spiritual rebirth. Um, giving ourselves up in that way is a death and a rebirth. We're no longer the same person. Uh, we're freed from the negative mental states that come about because of the patterns that that old person has built up. Because those patterns gradually dissolve. Um, and finally he tells us, it's the source of the world's joy and a cure for the world's suffering. There is no way we can fathom the depths of its goodness. Look at most living beings. Hoping to escape suffering, they run straight towards it. Looking for happiness in their delusion, they destroy their own happiness as though they were their own enemy. But the bodhicitta gives real happiness. It dispels suffering and it drives off delusion. So that's quite an advert. Um, if it was a car, and they were claiming this for it, we should either buy it or prosecute them for uh, misrepresentation. Um, if, a, if a car gave us that, we'd be fools not to buy it. If a relationship or a job gave us that, uh, we'd be fools not to go for it with all of our energy uh, and our determination. So if we really reflect on this, Shantideva is telling us, if we really reflect on this, we will realise how transient, how unsatisfactory, the sort of passing pleasures that we normally devote our lives to are. How whatever goals we choose, they're going to end. Uh, if we really reflect on that, and if we really reflect on our experience of higher mental states, however slight that might be, and how there's something actually much more solid and fulfilling and happiness producing from those. If we really re reflect on that, then we will really want to give ourselves to the bodhicitta we'll really want to give ourselves to this uh, spirit, this mindset that motivates the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. And if we really want to give ourselves to it, we'll do so. And that will propel us along the path. We'll give ourselves to the path. And if that happens, then chapter one will have done its job and we'll be ready to go on. We'll be ready to sort of proceed. Okay, so that's chapter one. Um, then chapters two and three. Um, and these are where we get the Sevenfold Puja from. These are where the Sevenfold Puja comes from. So chapter one was about wanting it. Chapters two and three are about deciding to get it. Deciding to do it. 
as the text puts it, it's like the difference between wanting to go travelling and actually making the decision to do so. Probably we all sort of, sort of want to go travelling, we want to go and sit, but we don't always think, right, that's it, I'm doing it, I'm going. So it's the difference between wanting it and actually deciding to do it. Um, and what the Sevenfold Puja is, what these two chapters do, as you'll hear over the coming weeks, is they take us um, through a progressive series of reflections and meditations um, that build on each other and culminate in us at least rehearsing a firm decision, making a firm decision to commit ourselves to the path, to commit ourselves to the bodhicitta, to give ourselves to the bodhicitta and allow it to rule our lives. Um, Sanger actually talks about it in terms of seven spiritual moods that the puja takes us through. Each one is a sort of reflection and a meditation. They build on each other. Uh, and they culminate in the last one, the dedication of merits and self-surrender, as, as we call it, in which we give ourselves to the bodhicitta, give ourselves to all beings, give ourselves to the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, give ourselves to Buddhist practice. So um, Shantideva expresses this in this way. He says, may I be the doctor and the nurse for all beings until the world is cured. May I be food for the hungry and wealth for the poor. May I be a protector for the unprotected, a guide for the lost and a boat to the other shore. May I be a lamp for those that need light and a bed for those who need rest. May I be a servant to all beings. Just like the earth, water, fire and air that are useful in many ways to the beings through infinite space, so may I too support the life of all beings until we are all liberated. So that's his evocation of this sort of self-giving. Or in the translation we chant in the puja, which you're probably more familiar with, it goes, my personality throughout my existences, my possessions, and my merit in all three ways, I give up without regard to myself for the benefit of all beings. Just as the earth and other elements are serviceable in many ways to the infinite number of beings, inhabiting limitless space, so may I become that which maintains all beings situated throughout space, so long as all have not attained to peace. And that's the great act of giving, that giving of oneself, that great act of generosity. Uh, deciding to do that is the culmination of those chapters two and three, the culmination of the sevenfold puja. Um, and so in the final section of the puja, at the culmination of the six stages that have led up to it, we make that decision to give ourselves. We've done the wanting, now we make the decision to go. We want to go travelling, now we decide to do it. Um, so in Shantideva's words, he says, um, just as the Buddhas before me took up the bodhicitta, just as they trained in the six perfections, so now I too, for the welfare of the world, embrace the bodhicitta. So now I too will train in the bodhisattva's path. Today my life has borne fruit. Today I have been born in the family of the Buddha. Today I have become one of the Buddha's family. Everything I do from now on should be worthy of this noble clan. Today in the presence of the Buddhas, I invite the world to be my guest at a great feast of delight. May humans, gods, and all beings rejoice. So that's the culmination, the decision to make this great act of giving. And I particularly like the image of giving a feast, actually. I particularly like the image of giving a feast. I mean, when we give a party and we sort of lay on stuff for everybody, um, it's an act of generosity. It's something we do for others um, that also brings us great joy. I mean, um, it's much more fun to give a feast give a party than to sort of sit at home on our own eating something you know on our own um, so it really brings out the fact that generosity is uh, brings us joy brings us happiness connects us with others uh, that doesn't come from focusing on ourselves so he compares this act of generosity to giving a feast giving a feast for all beings okay um, once again I imagine 
that some of you are thinking, if you're anything like me, some of you are thinking, well, that's all very wonderful, but I am not ready to say that I give up all my possessions and all my talents and uh, what else does it say? Um, give up without regard to myself for the benefit of all beings. I'm just not willing, I'm just not ready to say that, so I can't say these words in the puja with any degree of honesty. Um, it's all right. Because <laughs> none of us are. None of us are ready to say that. None of us are ready to say that. Don't worry about it. It's a rehearsal. It's a rehearsal. We're rehearsing. We're stepping into shoes bigger than ourselves, putting on a cloak bigger than ourselves. We're rehearsing what it might be like to be a bodhisattva. Um, we're not actually doing it. We're rehearsing it. Now, when we're kids, we play at different aspects of being an adult. And playing at those aspects of being an adult allows us to become an adult. They allow us to step into those bigger shoes. We play at being a bigger being than ourselves. And that is the way that we do it. That's the way that we try it out for size, the way we make it a reality. Um, there's nothing dishonest about it. It's like saying, well, you're playing at being soldiers. Well, you know, you're not. How dishonest. Or you're playing at shop or home or whatever. Well, it's not dishonest. It's an act of rehearsal. There's nothing dishonest about it. It's a preparation. And when we do the sevenfold puja, we're playing at becoming a bodhisattva. We're rehearsing becoming a bodhisattva. Part of us, I guarantee you, or you wouldn't be here, part of us wants to be a bodhisattva. Part of us wants to follow the bodhisattva path. Um, we've got that potential, like children that sort of know they need to grow in the direction of being adults, but we're not there yet. Um, but every time we rehearse, every time we play at it, um, every time we try those mental states out for size, that part of ourselves gets stronger. Um, it all gets more real. That becomes more what we are. Um, we can be a bit more of an expression of the bodhicitta. It's not an all or nothing thing. Um, we can more and more live from a bit of a bigger perspective, leave our sort of very cramped perspective behind, move more to a big one. It's not like we do it like that. Um, and we do that by rehearsing. The more we rehearse, the stronger the part of us that means those words can get. Um, eventually, it'll get so strong that it will be who we are. Um, and we will be able to say the words of the last bit of the puja wholeheartedly. Um, we really will be able to give ourselves uh, to become... To, to express, if you like, what I've poetically called big mind. And then all our problems will be over, according to Shantideva. All our problems will be over. We'll have found the philosopher's stone that turns the heavy lead of our ordinary life into the gold of the Bodhisattva path. So that's where the Sevenfold Puja fits into all of this. It's a practice, a series of progressive reflections, a series of spiritual moods, which lead us up to that decision whether we make it in a big or a small way, uh, that decision to give ourselves to the spiritual path, uh, to give ourselves to big mind, to give ourselves to the bodhicitta. First chapter about wanting to, the second one about making the decision. The first chapter about wanting to go travelling, the second and third about actually deciding to do it, culminating in, yeah, I'm going to give up my job and I'm going to buy a ticket. Yeah. Making the decision. And then in chapter four, the, t the text switches gear. So we're still in the first four chapters, still about this, how we give our dana, how we make our life an act of generosity. Um, and then the text shifts gear. So this is another example, I think, of the psychological and emotional wisdom of Shantideva and the text, that he expresses through the text, how much he knows human nature and takes it into account. So I don't know if you've ever had the experience of going on retreat and having a really cracking retreat, you know, really great meditations, whatever, you go on retreat and you think, well, that's it. I've broken through. You decide to live differently. Um, you really mean it. You feel all sorts of problems and mental states, negative mental states have fallen away and you've left them behind and you can see how you want to live and you know how you want to live and it feels great. 
And then about halfway through Monday morning, you're back in your usual mental states. Uh, and you cannot, for the life of you, remember what possessed you to think in that way. Um, you're back in your ordinary mental state. And this is what chapter 4 is all about. So the first chapter, how to want it. Second and third, how to decide to do it. Chapter 4, how to stick to that decision. Um, Shanti David describes very vividly the experience of falling back into lower states of being. The Monday morning after the retreat experience. Um, so he says, I'm somehow led back towards those same old lower states of being. I seem to have no will about this, as though I were under a spell. What is going on here? What is driving me? What is it that lives inside me? So he's made this decision in all good faith. He really meant it. I am going to do this. I'm going to give myself to the path. And then he finds that it's just not that easy. His inspiration is not there anymore. Uh, <coughs> so I'm somehow led back towards those same old lower states of being. I seem to have no will about this as though I'm under a spell. I don't know if that rings any bells with folks. It does with me, I have to say. Um, and again, this is an aspect of, an example of Shanti Deva's real perceptiveness, spiritual, um, emotional, psychological perceptiveness. All spiritual practitioners experience something like this. We all experience a gap between ourselves at our highest and ourselves um, as we are the rest of the time. We all make decisions with our conscious minds that we firmly want to do, we firmly believe we're going to do. We, you know, it, just, it just makes perfect sense. We can't really imagine how we can go back on it. Uh, and then we make those decisions with our conscious mind and the rest of us, something, something else, something unconscious, undermines them and makes it much more difficult. Um, we're undermined by deep volitions that we're perhaps not even fully aware of. So I've, I've heard that an analogy for this being like a horse and a rider. I think Sangharashtra might use this analogy. It's a bit as though our conscious mind um, is the rider and the rest of us is the horse. And we're saying, over there, we're going onward and upward, over there, and the horse is going over there. <laughs> and very often the horse is going towards... Um, a warm stable and horses of the other sex and a nose bag full of food. Um, but we think that way. So, you know, this is just, this is like the human condition. This is what we're like. Um, and this isn't limited to Buddhists. I mean, St. Paul, a Christian, St. Paul says, the good that I wish to do, that I do not do. The evil that I do not wish to do, that I do. This is a completely universal spiritual experience of, with our conscious mind being fully behind the path, but having bits of us that just ain't, that aren't tagging along, that undermine us. Um, and um, this is what Shanti Davis was dealing with in this fourth chapter. We've made a decision, but now how do we carry it out when we're no longer in touch with the inspiration that led us to it? We were inspired when we did the puja, when we led, went through those reflections, but we're not anymore. We're just back in the grey old world and we can't remember why we ever said we were going to do that. We're back in our normal mental state. That's what he's doing with. That's what he's dealing with. He's telling us, okay, what do we do under those circumstances? And incidentally, so I'm going to read some things that he tells us to do. And incidentally, I'll just make the point that he uses the word glaciers. So in this, so the word glaciers, in case you haven't come across the word glaciers, they mean negative mental states that disturb us, that sort of possess us and disturb, disturb our minds. Greed, hatred, arrogance, or envy, all sorts of things like that. They mean the negative mental states that sort of come in and possess us and, and churn up our mind. So, <clears throat> here he is, he's describing what it's like to have really made that decision in best faith and then just find that what, what am I doing? What am I doing? What stupid thing to do? Elsewhere he says, well, I, when I made that decision, I was inspired, but I've, gone, I've bitten off more than I can chew, basically. So, um, what happens? So, this is what he says. This is, this is his prescription. Um, he's very uncompromising. He sort of um, recommends a warrior-like determination.
determination um, to put the decision into practice. So he says, enemies like greed and hate don't have bodies to attack me. They aren't brave or intelligent. How do they make me their slave? But still they strike me down from inside my own mind. Why don't I boil with rage at this? Patience about this is completely out of place. So I won't rest until these enemies are struck down in front of my eyes. I have promised to free the universe from the glaciers, but I haven't yet freed myself. When I made my commitment to the bodhicitta, I was intoxicated. I wasn't taking my limitations into account. But now I can't turn back from destroying the glaciers. I'm going to be bloody-minded about this and wage a grudge war of vengeance. The only negative emotion I'm going to spare is the desire to murder the glaciers. <laughs> I don't care if my guts spill out. I don't care if my head falls off. But I'm never going to grovel to my arch enemies, the glaciers. I think there's two things in there that I love. One is that uh, Shantideva turns negative emotions into positives. The only negative emotion I'm going to spare is the desire to murder the glaciers. He's very good at sort of turning negative emotions to, to, to a positive. And the second thing is that he's funny. He's actually quite funny. He's actually humorous. I can imagine his audience sort of rolling around with laughter at times. I think we take it all a bit too heavy. I don't care if my guts fall out. I don't care if my head falls off. I think you're meant to laugh at that. But it's, it's also an expression of absolute determination. Okay, so that's his approach. That's his approach. Um, I don't care if my guts spill out. I'm going to murder the glaciers. Um, I am never going to bow down to my arch enemies. That might seem a bit out of keeping with our ideas of self-acceptance and um, being kind to ourselves. Okay? Um, so probably some people are probably... Ooh, but Shantideva is coming from somewhere a bit different. Um, he's coming from the sort of Buddhist wisdom perspective that sees that there is no unchanging me that I need to accept and be kind to. It's not that there's a me, that I, that I am me and I have to accept it and be kind to it. This me is just a habit I've got into and that I can get out of. Um, and, if, and being kind to the patterns that cause me suffering it's just silly from that sort of Buddhist point of view. So he says, human enemies become friends if we treat them kindly. But when we're kind to the glaciers, they just cause us more suffering. If we defeat a human enemy, they can take refuge in another country and regroup. But where can the glaciers go if I route them out of my mind? The glaciers are weaklings to be cowed by the glare of wisdom. They're just based on illusion. So heart, free yourself from fear and devote yourself to striving for wisdom. So he's saying that wisdom, insight, leads us to see these negative patterns as, as just, well, patterns, to the negative emotions as patterns. They're not me, and I don't have to be kind to them. They're weaklings to be cowed by the glare of wisdom because the glare of wisdom shows them up for having no substantiality not being something substantial that we have to accept or be kind to. Just patterns that can go. Um, so that's a bit about the first four chapters of the Bodhicharya, um, from which the Sevenfold Puja comes. Um, there's wonderful stuff after that. There's absolutely wonderful stuff after that. So we, get, we go through these stages of how do we want to give ourselves, how do we decide to give ourselves, and then how do we stick to that decision and then he goes through the nitty-gritty of the different practices that we do. Some of them, I just love some of these other chapters. I think the, the chapter on Shanti, on how we um, maintain, how we rise above small events and maintain positive mental states, no matter what the world throws at us, no matter what other people do, how we just go beyond blaming and just let it go and just be in positive states no matter what. In the sure and certain knowledge that the world will throw all sorts of crap at us as we'll, and other people will do all sorts of unskillful things and if we allow that to dominate our mental states well, who, who suffers? We do. I think that's a wonderful chapter. I think his chapter on Virya is wonderful. 
Um, so I'd really like to recommend that you read the text because it's a cracking text. Um, all I can do is go into bits of it. Um, I can hardly remember. It's, I, I've got a little paperback copy which is really thumbed because it go, can go anywhere. You know, if you're on a train, you just whip it out and read it. Um, so I really recommend it as a, as, as a text. Um, it's small, but it packs a terrific punch. Sometimes it packs too much of a punch for us a lot. It sort of goes, oh, <gasps> takes the breath away. It says things that are a bit heavy for Westerners. You know, it goes on a bit about things that we'd really rather not think about. And so you can bounce off it a bit. You can bounce off it a bit, but it's worth persisting because it's really, really good. I'll say something else that I don't like most of the translations. I think the scholarly translations often, sometimes people, I realize people don't understand even what it's saying because of the translation. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, what am I going to do? I'm going to blow my own trumpet and suggest as a starter that you might read a, a version of it that's got rid of some of the really sort of <gasps> breathtaking bits and expresses it in a bit more ex accessible language, which is actually part of the Metro training course. Uh, and it's on the web in Free Buddhist Audio in year four. There's a sort of uh, somewhat cut-down version of the Bodhicharya Avatara for study, which would be a good starting point, but then go on and read the whole thing in another translation. So I heartily recommend this text to you. It's a cracking text, and it's where, the, you know, it's, it's the context for the Sevenfold Puja. The whole thing is about this giving ourselves to the path, giving ourselves to the spirit of the path, um, which is what the Puja is all about. Thank you.